I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our Advent series, Always Winter, Never Christmas. We are going to read the first nine verses. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Yahweh, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Yahweh. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray for we are all your people. These words are inspired by God. I've got a friend, uh, only one friend, really. Not now, let me finish the sentence. That was, I've got one friend, as willing as I am, to hear about how awful the world can be sometimes. Uh, my friend Tyler and I, when we read or see something terrible, We've learned that almost no one wants to see that article or hear that story or watch that clip, and I sympathize. I don't, I don't want to either, mostly. But there's another part of me that, as much as I hate it, it feels necessary to grieve the world's brokenness sometimes, and I think that my friend is the same way. So eventually, we learn through experience uh, to confide these stories to one another, which means, among other things, our text message thread is a place very few people would ever like to visit. And there's lots of qualifiers like this will ruin your day or don't click on this, that kind of thing. And the obvious critique, of course, is, oh, you guys are sickos or you just like these awful stories. You're exploiting tragedy for entertainment, much like, you know, the quintessential suburban white woman loves a true crime podcast or, you know, or a docuseries. And yeah, I get it. I get it. It does look like that. But it's not that. I don't Actually, believe it or not, I don't usually go looking for these stories. I find them when I'm looking for something else or reading or researching something. But when I do find them, part of me feels as if it's inappropriate to kind of look away, uh, like I'm hiding. So most of the time, I'll look, and that looking takes a toll sometimes. But I think, if I may, it's an appropriate thing to do during Advent, and one of my favorite scenes in my favorite Christmas movie, Billy Peltzer walks Kate home 
after her shift at Dory's Tavern, and snow falls as they pass carolers and homes, you know, festooned with twinkling lights. A very Christmassy scene. Silent Night actually soundtracks the scene as Kate confesses to Billy that she doesn't celebrate Christmas. And she tells Billy that many people are most unhappy during the holiday season, that the suicide rate goes, suicide rate goes up, and that while some are opening their presents, she and says, and I quote, others are opening their wrists. And something about that line, the terrible, you know, lyricism of it, contrasting such a, a cozy Christmassy scene feels really off. Because Christmas is the joyful season, you know, the season of charitable goodness. And it is, that's true. But the world doesn't unbreak during Christmas. It's still all messed up. But Christmas is supposed to be hope. In C.S. Lewis's beloved, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy first wanders through the wardrobe and into Narnia, and she finds it very, very cold, a wintry place, and she meets Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, and he tells her, it is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long, always winter, but never what? Christmas. Who said spring? Oh, wow. You're gonna, I'm sorry. You're going to have to leave. We're going to have to ask you to step out. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Always winter, but never Christmas. Spring is also accurate. Yeah, it's just not the quote. <laughs> Whew. Today is, as we've said a couple times so far, the first Sunday of Advent, which is a sacred season in the church calendar. We aren't sure exactly when it started or how it took shape, at least not the shape known to so many Christians around the world. But what we do know is that centuries before tonight, Christians set a fixed date for the Christ Mass, which was the celebration of the incarnation of God in the birth of Jesus. Now, you realize that neither the Gospels nor any historical sources actually date when Jesus was born, so setting a recurring calendar date to remember and reflect on and celebrate the birth of Jesus was just sort of up to Christians. And that date was set intentionally within December solstice, when the world is darkest and most cold, when things stop growing, when animals hide themselves away, when flowers wilt and die and trees become skeletal. Christians deliberately marked the inevitability of winter, a time when cold and darkness and death seemed to envelop the world for the season of the Christ Mass or Christmas. And then by the fourth century, we have official church writings acknowledging the observation of Advent, that it was already in full swing. And by the fifth and sixth centuries, Advent is well represented in church history. Heck, they were even doing Advent sermon series by then, just like this. Hundreds and hundreds of years of Christians across all kinds of backgrounds and traditions fanning out all over the world, coming together to remember this sacred season at this time of year and in this special way. And if you consult Advent sources down throughout the centuries, you won't find necessarily countdown calendars and chocolates, but you will find a recognition of and a meditation on something incredible unfolding in the midst of an awful period of waiting. Like that scripture that we just read, you come to those who wait on you. The word Advent comes from the Latin uh, Adventus, which itself translate, 
The Greek word parousia, which is a word that the writers of Scripture utilize to explain two incredible events in history. Jesus' first arrival amongst humanity in flesh and blood, and an eventual return of Jesus in glory at what we call the renewal of all things and the resurrection. And Advent acknowledges both things, and with them, inevitably, it has to recognize the space in between, which is where we are. In other words, the time of waiting, the awful, cold, dark waiting. And Christmas fatigue and cynicism argue that, you know, the pagan influence and the corporate marketing and the cheap hallmark sentiment have diluted and ultimately compromised the ancient wonder of Advent. But I personally disagree. To me, children gathering around a fireplace hearth, for example, with orange tongues of light flickering on their faces as sheets of ice crystallized on barren trees and shrubs outside, that captures, in a way, hope against a backdrop of death. Even the things that we stole from non-Christian traditions do this really well. Decorating homes with evergreen boughs during winter was routinely practiced by pagans as a reminder that, hey, winter's really rough, but spring is coming. Again, the idea was hope and waiting. Pagans would also decorate uh, their feast during winter solstice, again, to create this kind of mini outpost of life and joy when the world outside was dark and dying. But as with many pagan traditions, these things were eventually subsumed into Christian celebrations over time. As Christianity spread throughout Europe, disciples of Jesus took to decorating evergreen trees with apples to represent the Garden of Eden, calling them paradise trees. So if you want to, you know, really sound historically impressive, start calling that, walk into your family's home, mm, you know, your in-laws or whatever, nice paradise tree. Oh, you don't know about that? They did this. <laughs> they did this actually uh, around the time of the liturgical feast of St. Adam and Eve, which was celebrated on December 24th. Uh, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther was said to have decorated this evergreen with candles around the 16th century. Gales and Celts burned logs decorated with holly and ivy and pine cones to cleanse themselves of the past year and welcome the next one. They also believed, apparently, that the ashes would help protect them against evil spirits and lightning. Whatever. And today, the Yule log, which is what that was, uh, is more like a long video of somebody else's fireplace. But... <laughs> Some of the uh, traditions that we assumed were pagan in origin may have actually been rooted in church tradition. Hanging stockings for Santa, for example, may be uh, a variation on the older tradition that involved children leaving shoes filled with hay on December 5th, the eve of St. Nicholas's feast day. In the morning, the kids would discover that St. Nicholas's donkey ate the hay, and in exchange, generous St. Nicholas of Myra filled the empty shoes with treats because who doesn't want to eat out of their own shoe on Christmas morning? Uh, there's also a really old story in which St. Nicholas learns of a poor father who was unable to pay for his three daughters' dowry, so he drops gold down the chimney to cover the dowry, which landed, you guessed it, in the stockings that were hung to dry by the fireplace. Because again, nothing says Christmas like gold nuggets in dirty, soggy socks hanging by the fire. Really, it doesn't matter. Uh, today, I suspect that the total number of people who bring an evergreen into their home to honor the Roman god Saturn comes in at about zero. So for the most part, we don't have Christmas dinner parties to celebrate solstice, or we don't burn logs to avoid demons and lightning bolts. But there's a common motif through these traditions, which is hope 
in the darkness, anticipation that builds to celebration at a breakthrough moment, that in the darkest hour, God is coming to save us. For years now, I realize as I look back over the last few Advent series, I have began our Advent Sunday uh, with this quote from Fleming Rutledge. She writes, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. It requires courage to look into the heart of darkness, especially when we are afraid we might see ourselves there. The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Instead of pointing out someone else's sin, we confess our own. In our sins, we have been a long time. Advent begins in the dark. In the story of the Bible, things uh, were good when they started. For a little while, anyway, that's how the story goes. There's God, all goodness, love and relationship and creativity as if it were no more daunting than, you know, setting pen to paper or brush to canvas. He's, he spoke a universe into existence, an infinite intelligence that set layers upon layers, billions and more, a never-ending kaleidoscope of natural wonder from oceans to insects and all the way down to the little spinning atoms and swimming cells that make them all up beyond the land and sky and sea to cosmic heavenly dimensions where he created angelic beings. So incredible that for a human to be visited by such a thing is to cower in existential terror. And he set it all loose in the sandbox of his artistry, you're free. And that's when things stop being so great. Wouldn't you like to be in charge rather than God? Yes, we would. Thank you very much. And then Cain murders his brother Abel, and humanity just keeps spiraling into madness and chaos and death. And we forget because we have methods of forgetting. We've got TV and smartphones and central heating and multivitamins and health insurance and seat belts and kids' soccer schedules. And those things aren't always bad, but we have a way of walling ourselves up from the awful winds of winter until it creeps through the cracks. And then there's a tragedy, or someone gets sick, someone dies, or there's a miscarriage, or the car wrecks, or the marriage ends, or the dream dies. But for a lot of us, at least tonight, things are pretty swell. That's how I feel. We don't want the bad news. Who would? We don't want to see the terrible article or read about the heinous evil or the bleak tragedy. We don't want it for ourselves or for anyone else. But outside the house, it's still winter. Henry Nouwen wrote, I keep, I keep expecting loud and impressive events to convince me and others of God's saving power. Our temptation is to be distracted by them. When I have no eyes for the small signs of God's presence, the smile of a baby, the carefree play of children, the words of encouragement and gesture of love offered by friends, I will remain, I will always remain tempted to despair. What I love about that quote, this was in my Advent reading this morning, and I found it fascinating because it infers that the world is weighted to the side of hopelessness and that our work is to lean full weight against the wind of the way things are or to swim upstream against the current of that despair. If we do not 
focus our attention on God in both the big and small things of life, we will remain, in his words, tempted to despair. That effort of leaning against the wind or swimming upstream is also called, quite simply, seeking God. But the problem is, if it's entirely up to us to seek God and to find him, we're screwed. I'm over halfway through the life expectancy of the average American male, and I can tell you something that I've seen conclusively already. We, in and of ourselves, are no good at finding our way to God. We're hampered by our own selfishness, by dumb, hateful chaos and evil. It isn't, isn't it kind of simultaneously incredible and unsurprising that right now, tonight, the world is watching entire governments and groups of people attempt to end conflict with knives and guns and bombs and with beheadings and bombings and rifles. And the rest of the world, beholden to these atrocities, doesn't fall to its knees and weep tears of lament at the loss of life and the unending cycle of foolish violence. No, we respond with more hate and more fighting. They deserve it. No, they deserve it. Pick a side. No, that's the wrong side. God, have mercy on us. We're no closer to finding our own way to God than we were thousands of years ago. God is going to have to come find us. And at Christmas, we remember that he did, but not just that he did, that he will. Earlier this week, I was driving home one evening, and it was freezing outside, which is great. I love to see that weather app with all those 20s and 30s, and I'm like, ooh, it's going to be a good one. Uh, and my car takes forever to warm up, so I was sitting on one hand and, you know, steering with the other, and I was listening to carols as I passed dozens of homes and businesses dressed with lights and Christmas trees glowing in living room windows and light reflecting on frost that was already gathering on lawns and windshields. The world often feels as if it is always winter, but never Christmas, the cold without the hope. And that scene of the freezing and the frost and the, and the car and the shivering, but the lights and the trees, it's almost as if Christmas becomes an outpost of hope in the winter. Christmas, in the story that C.S. Lewis wrote, was the hope on which Narnia was waiting, the advent of coming salvation. And the same is true for us. The world is often a very cold place. If it isn't for you right now, um, God bless you. Thank God for that. But know this, it is for someone else. Christmas is an outpost in the cold. To allow ourselves dare I say, force ourselves to look into the darkness is the work of Advent. Looking to, into the darkness at Christmas is not an exercise in morbid wallowing or, or, you know, fatalism. It is the empowerment of everlasting hope. Because to rush to the manger is to rob it of its scandalous beauty. Yes, God came to save us, and that in and of itself is heartbreakingly beautiful, but why? Why do we need to be saved? Exactly how bad has it gotten? Redemption is meaningless without a reason to be redeemed. From what are we being saved? 
amidst all the beautiful, wonderful rituals and traditions that we hold so dear, that I hold so dear tonight, in this same world where I will, when I get home, light a candle with my family and read scripture and we pray together, where last night we gathered up together and we drank hot chocolate and we watched Christmas movies. Elsewhere, in this same world, a family shivers on a street corner and no one is coming to help them tonight. Or elsewhere, the addiction overpowers and topples an already teetering life so that it shatters completely. Or elsewhere, the doctor is just waiting to make the call on Monday morning with very bad news. Or elsewhere, terrified children will soon learn that their parents have been killed in a military attack. Or parents cling to the remains of their children and cry out to God for salvation. We need help. We need saving. And he is coming to make all wrongs right. This Advent, my gentle invitation to you, the church that I love, is to ask God what it would mean to allow your heart to hold that pain and that hope in the same place. If only for moments at a time, if only for a season, how do we look into the world's hurt, into our hurt, the pain and brokenness of our own stories, the unanswered prayer, the tragedy that we've seen, the ones that we've lost, and to then hold that pain out before the resilient fires of Christmas, the fire of hope still burning. He came into this world to save us, and he is coming again. If we allow ourselves space make room in our distracted hearts this Advent to acknowledge that things are not as they should be. Then, when we come together in this room on December 24th, the final Sunday of the Advent season, we can look fully into the light of salvation revealed so surprisingly, so subversively in the glory of God made fragile and small as he stooped to take our brokenness and fragility on himself in order to save us from the mess we made. We don't have to go find God. We can't. He came to us. In one of my favorite Christmas songs, the uh, lyricist Chris, Wright's, or Chris Rice, he sings, uh, So wrap our injured flesh around you. Breathe our air. Walk our sod. Rob our sins and make us holy. Perfect Son of God. Why did God choose to do such a thing? To save us from the winter. Why did we need saving? When Christmas finally breaks the long winter in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's this beautiful, charming little scene where Father Christmas, who's sort of the English personification of Christmas, the English Santa Claus, he arrives for the first time in ages. And Mr. Beaver, if you know the story, he exclaims, come and see, this is a nasty knock for the witch, he says. This is a very British thing to say. He said, it looks as if her power is already crumbling. And then Father Christmas says, I've come at last. The witch has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. But Father Christmas in the story is not the hope. His arrival merely points to someone greater than he, and he cries out as he speeds away on his sleigh, long live the true king. The cry of Christmas is that defiant hymn of worship that urges in the midst of the darkness in the winter, rejoice, rejoice, 
Emmanuel, God with us. He will come to you. Emmanuel is God with us. We wouldn't come to him, so he came to us. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to guide and direct our hearts and prepare us to meet him in this season of Advent. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.